It's pitch black. You can't see even a foot in front of your face in the inky black water. The only thing you can see is a red strip of light beneath you that's guiding your way. Your senses are dulled by isolation, and all you can hear is your own incremental splashes and breaths. Suddenly, you feel a searing pain and then a burning that keeps building and building. Then, almost as suddenly, your back is paralyzed, and then your chest, and then your breathing becomes labored. You've just been stung by a box jellyfish, and you can go into respiratory failure, heart attack, and death within five minutes. This is the nightmare that Diana Nyad, world-class, record-breaking marathon swimmer, found herself in on her third attempt to swim from Cuba to Florida. She tread water in the open ocean, hyperventilating eyes wide with fear. Then she turned over and floated on her back, fighting for her life as she struggled to breathe. I'm Kristen, and this is Broadly Underestimated, the podcast dedicated to understanding the underestimated aspects of our lives. Every object, institution, historical event, even the most mundane, has its own revolutionary story. And it's often the underestimated women behind those stories that have shaped life as we know it today. Have you ever met someone who just wouldn't give up? Someone who was so dedicated to or just stubborn about an idea or a goal that no matter how much time, money, or energy it took, they refused to let it go? Okay, now for the majority of you, you'll need to take that person and multiply them by approximately a thousand. And that is where we approach the level of determination of Diana Nyad. So, spoiler alert, Diana Nyad didn't die that night. She was stung by a box jellyfish while swimming from Cuba to Florida, but she almost did. And while she wasn't successful that night, nor her previous two attempts, nor the following, she never gave up. So, let's fast forward to six months after that terrifying jellyfish sting. Diana Nyad now stands on a TED Talk stage in front of a large audience. She's wearing a white button-up shirt, and she's mic'd up and walks comfortably around the stage as she addresses the crowd. She begins speaking about a day a few years ago, near her 60th birthday, when she was struck with a moment of sort of existential crisis. Her mother had recently passed away at the age of 82, and she realized that she might only have 20 years left on Earth. So, of course, a moment like this would trigger a midlife crisis on steroids for any of us. But instead of buying a Porsche, Diana realized that, and I quote, The remedy to all of this malaise was going to be for me to chase an elevated dream, an extreme dream. Something that would require utter conviction and unwavering passion. Something that would make me my best self in every aspect of my life, every minute, of every day because the dream was so big that I couldn't get there without that kind of behavior and that kind of conviction. So intense response, yes, but it's also an understandable one. If any of us find ourselves in a similar moment, we might recommit ourselves to travel to that place we've always wanted to see or to learn that language we've always been meaning to learn or to run that half marathon we've always put off. It just so happens that Diana Nyad's thing involves mind-numbing hours of swimming in water that makes you sick while you become hallucinating shark bait. But hey, who am I to judge? So in the previous two episodes of the Swimsuit series, we talked about Annette Kellerman's extraordinary life and how her scandalous, skin-bearing swimsuit changed the world of swimming forever. And Annette Kellerman and Diana Nyad have some important things in common. 
Both women were determined marathon swimmers, and both of them used revolutionary swimwear to accomplish amazing things. But more on that later. For now, let's talk about what made the swim from Cuba to Florida the one thing that Diana thought of when she asked herself what she'd always wanted to do. So Diana started swimming competitively at a young age. Her geography teacher had told all the kids in her class that if they swam on the swim team, they would all get A's. So of course, the entire class just jumped into the pool. But it turned out that Diana was fantastic at it. By the age of 12, she was swimming six hours a day. And at the age of 14, she was the best backstroker in the state of Florida. So by her 20s, she was a world-class, record-setting competitive swimmer. She swam the English Channel, broke the women's record for swimming from Capri to Naples. She made the first crossing of Lake Ontario from north to south and many more extreme swims. And then she swam around the island of Manhattan. So on her first attempt around the island of Manhattan, she actually contracted some kind of virus from the water, um, gross, and had to be pulled out after eight hours of swimming. She was shivering and speaking incoherently, and it took her 10 days to recover. And then she turned around and hopped right back into the water. After swimming for seven hours and 57 minutes, she arrived at the finish line and she had broken the existing record by almost an hour. Now, as we can see, Diana Nyad's swimming career had a focus on breaking world marathon swim records. She has a unique physical and mental ability that's a requirement for extreme endurance athletes. And that ability is to obsess. Running, swimming, climbing, cycling extreme distances absolutely demands a prolonged state of training and preparation. And then there is the performance of the thing itself. Ultra-endurance sports are just as much a challenge for the mind as they are for the body. Repetitive movements for hours upon hours and miles upon miles require the mental discipline to stay focused and to stay positive when the body becomes exhausted, the pain becomes extreme, and the obstacles seem too great. So after a pretty hefty swimming career, Diana had decided that she would retire around the age of 30, which is a pretty reasonable age for athletes to retire. But first, she wanted to do a legacy swim. She wanted to do something epic, something that would push her physical and mental abilities to their limits. She studied nautical maps and considered many locations until the patch of water between Cuba and Florida drew her in. She'd grown up in Florida and had found profound meaning in that 100-mile stretch of water between the two countries. She thought about all the unfortunate people who had tried to swim those waters but had succumbed to the elements. This patch of water represented a place where no one could or should go, but it was because those waters seemed forbidden that she saw the magic in it. Again, swimming from Cuba to Florida would mean swimming over 100 miles. Now, Diana would swim at an average speed of about one and a half to maybe two miles an hour. So covering 100 miles would take three to four days of nonstop swimming. That's right, no rest outside of the water and no sleeping. Just some cozy saltwater sleep deprivation. Oh, and all this while swimming in the Gulf Stream, which is the fastest moving body of water in the world. It would have been nice if the Gulf Stream were pushing her in the direction she wanted to go, but oh no, the Gulf Stream would be generally pushing her east and off course. So she would have to constantly be correcting and navigating to make sure she didn't accidentally end up in the Bahamas. Oh, and just for fun, the waters were filled with sharks. So because of that prevalent shark presence, Diana would have to swim in a large shark cage that moved as she did. It would be pulled in the water by a boat that carried her support team and moved alongside Diana as she swam. 
So in August of 1978, at age 28, Diana stood on the shore of Cuba, looking out at an unexpectedly turbulent sea. The water was choppy, but Diana and her team just hoped that the waters would calm as she got further away from the shore. So she jumped in and started this epic swim. But in the end, the swim was just not to be. The big problem was the timing. Only at a specific time of year is the water warm enough and the weather potentially calm enough for someone to swim for three days straight. And in the end, the weather was Diana's undoing. The turbulent water knocked Diana around inside the shark cage and also pushed her farther and farther off course. After almost 42 hours of swimming, Diana had to acknowledge that reaching the Florida Keys would no longer be possible. And she was devastated. She had summoned every ounce of will she had, but in the end, the elements overcame her. Now, failing at something you had dreamed about and trained long and hard for would be hard for anyone, but as we'll see moving forward, Diana has a specifically extreme characteristic. She doesn't give up. Now, this makes sense given the mindset that ultra-endurance sports require, but Diana takes this to the next level. However, at age 28, having been so utterly wiped out by the elements on her attempt from Cuba to Florida, and knowing what a huge feat organizing a swim like that is, Diana left the Cuba to Florida swim behind. A year later, she broke the unassisted, meaning that she didn't use any fins or protective gear, open water record for both men and women for swimming 102 miles from the Bahamas to Florida. She swam up on the Florida shore on her 30th birthday and vowed that she would never swim another stroke in her life. And she didn't for more than 30 years. After that last marathon swim, Diana moved on to other things. She stayed in good shape, cycling and playing sports, and she had a successful career in sports broadcasting. But in 2009, as her 60th birthday approached, she had that moment of existential crisis and wondered what she wanted to do with the rest of her life or what she still hadn't done. And suddenly, that Cuba to Florida swim popped back into her mind. So she started swimming quietly just to see how it felt. She hadn't swum at all in the past 30 years and had no idea how her body would respond. And she didn't even tell the closest people in her life about this. She would go to a local country club pool and started swimming for just 20 minutes at a time. Then a couple of months later, she was swimming for four hours at a time. Now, I'm sort of feeling like four hours of swimming is a pretty long time. I would feel pretty good about that. But of course, this was nothing compared to the 50 to 60 hours it would take to actually swim from Cuba to Florida. As Diana started reaching longer swims, she began to think seriously about whether she could actually do this. She asked herself whether her body and mind could withstand the ravages of the ocean, the wildlife, and 60 hours of nonstop swimming. And in the end, the resounding answer was yes. Now, let's keep in mind that Diana couldn't achieve this at the age of 28, and now she wanted to try again in her 60s. One of the great injustices of sports is that most athletes would be far more effective mentally the older they get, but in many cases, their bodies are no longer capable of achieving peak speeds. However, an endurance sport can be a different animal. Once you get into ultra-endurance territory, it's as much a mental game as a physical one. So being able to apply years of experience and wisdom to such a huge physical challenge can make all the difference in the world, given the right level of fitness and the right conditions. But it does become more dicey as to whether the body will hold up against the elements that would push a human being to their absolute limits. 
But Diana was determined to go forward. She had the utter conviction in herself that it could be done and that she could be the person to do it. However, she did want to do a few things differently than the last time. So first of all, let's talk classifications. Diana wanted to do the swim in a very specific way. She wanted to complete the more than 100 mile swim without being physically supported in any way. So she would never get out of the water at any point. Her support team could provide food, water, and medical aid, but only if they did so without propping her up or physically supporting her. While she ate and drank, she would have to float or tread water, and if she needed medical assistance, it would have to be administered in the water. So of course, one does not go on an expedition like this alone. This was a mammoth operation, and the first step would be to understand exactly what conditions Diana would be swimming under. So let's talk about what a hostile environment Diana would be putting herself into on this swim. The moment she jumped into the water, she would be in a race against time. Not so much a race to get to Florida by a specific hour, but a race to get to Florida before her body shut down. Because the moment she started swimming, she would begin expending energy that she wouldn't be able to fully recuperate throughout the swim. This deficit would gradually cause her body to focus whatever energy it did have to just keeping her essential organs running. And as she inevitably swallowed and her body absorbed the salt water she was immersed in, it would dehydrate her, upset her stomach, and stunt her digestion. This is a particularly crucial point because she would need to eat regularly to compensate for the enormous amount of energy she would be expending and not ever fully recuperating. But as time went on, the salt water would wear down her digestion process and therefore her ability to absorb those critical calories. And just for fun, the salt water would also cause sores on her skin and swelling in her lips, tongue, and throat, making it difficult to breathe. Great, right? And then there's the chafing. Oh, the chafing. Chafing is the nemesis of endurance athletes on a normal day, but imagine how thousands upon thousands of strokes will make the edges of your swimsuit cut into your skin. After long swims, Diana would have deep gashes on her shoulders where her swimsuit rubbed and cut into her skin thousands of times. So Diana's body and the elements presented a cocktail of different challenges to react to and manage. And for that, she would need her team. It would take a team of experts to get them through the first few hours, let alone to the finish. So since she would need to consistently consume calories and water to help her compensate for energy loss, she would need a team of handlers to prepare and regulate her food intake. So another unique challenge would be the Gulf Stream. So that fast, large moving body of water trying to push her off course essentially. So Diana would need a navigation team to constantly navigate and reconfigure the route to make sure that she stayed on course and didn't drift so far that she couldn't recover. Now, as part of this effort to keep Diana on course, they devised a streamer that would hang down from an arm protruding from the boat, letting the streamer fall into the water and just below Diana. This way, she could constantly see the straight line to follow on her swim. At night, the streamer would glow red, as any other type of light could attract sharks. On top of this, she would need a weather team, a medical team, and a general support team. In all, she would need more than 30 experts to help her get through this swim. But of that support crew, we still have yet to talk about one vital team, the shark diving and kayak team. That stretch of water between Cuba and Florida is dripping with sharks, oceanic white tips, hammerheads, bull sharks, and tiger sharks. And Diana wanted to be the first person to swim from Cuba to Florida without a shark cage. Are you hearing the Jaws theme in your head too? 
Now, of course, we know that sharks are not man-eating monsters, but we do know that they can get curious, and sometimes that curiosity doesn't go very well for swimmers. So the shark team consisted of shark divers in the water, keeping an eye out for whatever might be out there, but also a protective electronic system. So two kayakers would float alongside Diana each stroke of the way. Attached to those kayaks was what's called a shark shield that formed an elliptical field of electricity at a certain pulse that disturbs the shark's sensory organ in their snout by causing twitching. This, of course, generally disturbs the sharks enough to keep them out of the area, but shark divers kept a constant eye out in the water in case the shield wasn't a big enough deterrent. And let's remember that the goal was for Diana to stay in the water no matter what in order to keep the classification of her swim. So if a shark was spotted, it was either prodded away by the shark divers or Diana would stop and doggy paddle to create the least amount of disturbance and frequency in the water as possible. So again, can we just take this in for a moment? I mean, I'm clear that many people don't share what I feel is a healthy fear of invading a predator space, where they have every right to live and be and hunt, and where humans are simply visitors at their own risk. But I'm not sure how a person keeps their cool in the water when they know that a shark has its curious eyes on them. But I digress. On August 7, 2011, Diana was full of adrenaline as she jumped into the ocean off the Havana coast. She'd been working toward this for so long, and she was in complete control of her fitness and training, but the elements were beyond anyone's control, so it would be understandable if everyone were a bit nervous. But unexpectedly, it was her body that would betray her. Diana swam through a calm first night, but coming into the next day, she began to experience pain in one of her shoulders. Now, at this point, she was not only swimming through the physical exertion of double-digit hours of swimming, but the entire swim would take hundreds of thousands of strokes, and she was now painfully aware of every single one. Then, after 18 hours of swimming and 69 miles to go, Diana began complaining about not being able to catch her breath, and her muscles felt weak because of the lack of oxygen. She'd been swimming for hours without being able to breathe well and could no longer continue that way. She was having an asthma attack, which she had never had on a training swim before. So she treaded water and floated on her back while being treated by her medical team and trying to get her breathing under control. After a while, she was finally on her way again. But as she got underway, her breathing still wasn't at 100%, and on top of that, the currents had picked up, making her have to fight even harder to stay on course. Because breathing was so difficult and her shoulder was so painful, for four to six hours, Diana had to stop every few minutes for a break. And the byproduct of this was that every moment that she wasn't swimming, they would drift. So little by little, they were being taken farther and farther off course. Diana's lungs were tight and she couldn't even do a backstroke to lessen the exertion because of the pain in her shoulder. It came to a point where she couldn't even swim for four minutes without stopping to catch her breath. But in an impressive feat of will, she pushed through swimming for 15 hours this way without full lung capacity. But after 29 hours of swimming and drifting, Diana really wasn't making progress. The stop-and-go pace was adding miles to her swim and wouldn't allow her to reach Florida within a time frame that her body could withstand. She heartbreakingly had to acknowledge that she would not be able to reach Florida. This, of course, was devastating. She'd been working toward this dream for almost two years, and after 29 hours, the dream was over. The boat ride back to the shore was a tearful one, but there was really nothing more to be done. So Diana went home and began processing her experience. It was a gutting disappointment, but she also began regrouping. 
She'd had this experience before, though on a smaller scale, when she failed at her first attempt around Manhattan, and she knew that failures make the achievement that much sweeter. She was in the best shape of her life, and she wasn't even sore when the swim was over, and she knew she had to try it again. But what she didn't want was to have to train for another year, waiting for the perfect window of weather to make the swim possible. So six weeks later, Diana and her team arrived in Cuba again, and she jumped into the water once more. But spoiler, things didn't go well this time either. This time, the challenges were much different and unexpected. So about two hours into the swim, Diana saw nothing but pitch black ocean below her, and she nor her team could use the lights at night for fear of attracting sharks, which again just feels like a horror movie waiting to happen. And this is where we catch back up with Diana from the moment at the beginning of this episode, in the pitch black of night, with only the red light of the streamer to guide her. When suddenly she begins screaming, but not from a shark bite. She was screaming fire, 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 over and over again. She was in excruciating pain and felt like her body had been dipped into burning hot oil. She'd been stung by a box jellyfish. Now, the box jellyfish is the most venomous marine animal on Earth. Their tentacles can essentially release hundreds of thousands of microscopic hypodermic needles of venom into your body, and their sting can lead to respiratory failure, heart attacks, cerebral hemorrhage, and death within five minutes. Again, horror movie. As her body reacted to the sting, Diana's eyes were wide open. She appeared to hyperventilate, and her main handler, Bonnie, coached her through breathing and remaining calm as she treaded water. One of her team members got into the water to offer whatever assistance he could, but then he got stung himself. He got back into the boat and was down for the count. Soon he was down to three breaths per minute and experiencing paralysis. Meanwhile, Diana stayed in the water. She was shivering with chills while trying to get her breathing under control. Her handler gave her a swimming shirt and pants to put on to try to distract her from the pain and help her work through this physical crisis. So let's have a side conversation here. Like, at what point does dedication to a goal supersede your own survival instinct? Because it kind of feels like we're there. But really, Diana Nyad is a person who processes pains and stresses in an incredibly effective way. In fact, her brain has actually been studied for her ability to process psychological stressors. But it's absolutely incredible to me that Diana somehow maintained her presence of mind to look beyond the crisis she was experiencing. She was given oxygen and floated on her back to stabilize her breathing. And after a while, she turned over and continued swimming. She swam through the night and into the next day. She had recovered and was even in a groove. Everyone on her team was optimistic, but the jellyfish come out at night. So before dusk on the second night, Diana put on her swim shirt and pants again to prepare. But after sundown, about 40 miles away from the Florida Keys, Diana was stung again. And this time, she was stung on the face. At this point, her body had been through too much. She agreed to get out of the water and into the boat for treatment. As Diana was being treated and given an oxygen mask, her breathing slowed. Her friend and handler Bonnie coached her again through breathing in and out. And for a terrifying period, Diana didn't inhale or exhale but finally she breathed again. 
So you'd think this was the end of our story here. Diana surviving the first thing alone was a triumph, let alone surviving another the next night. But Diana is nothing if not extraordinary. So shortly after recovering her breath and her vital signs stabilizing, she began a conversation about whether she could continue the swim, just with a different classification, now that she had exited the water part of the way through. Yes, that happened. If she were to continue, it would be a staged swim, meaning that they mark the GPS point where she got out of the water and then she jumps back in at the same point to continue. It would of course change the classification of the swim, but she could still continue. So again, side commentary. Is anyone else looking around to see if they're the only one living in an alternate universe that says that perhaps when you almost stop breathing, it's time to call the swim? Right. But soon, she was back in the water. They made an improvised mask out of a shirt to put over her head to protect her face and neck against the jellyfish. But by morning, it was apparent that her body had just been through too much. Understandably, she wasn't swimming at full capacity. Essentially, she was swimming 40% of the time and being pushed off course 60% of the time. In fact, she was so far off course that her navigation team believed it was no longer possible to make it to Florida. So at hour 40, after swimming 91 miles with the ocean current, but with 54 miles to go to the Florida shore, Diana called the swim. She was covered in stings, and today, Diana believes it was sheer will that kept her alive through that ordeal. Now, yet again, this result was devastating, and Diana went home to process this loss. After three attempts, anyone could respect someone for calling it good at this point. And I kind of feel like approaching death was a pretty good reason to say, nah, the swim just isn't for me. But two months later, in Diana and I at fashion, she approached her team and asked for one more chance. However, I'll just cut to the chase on this one. As Diana stroked through the open ocean in August of 2012, she'd worn a protective mask that only left her nose and lips exposed. But of course, as luck would have it, the jellyfish stung her mouth. And a horrific tropical storm put her team, and especially Diana, at grave risk. After swimming 70 miles for 51 hours, Diana was pulled from the water. So imagine how this must have felt. How do you process this kind of bad luck? And then how do you move forward? Again, a forgivable response at this point would be to say, hey, I gave it the old college try, but it's just not worth dying over. But obviously that's just not in Diana's DNA. As I'm sure you figured out, Diana is just not one to give up, but at this point, she'd been training and attempting to swim for almost three years, and the effort had been all-consuming. She trained all day, and in between corresponded with wildlife and sports experts, spoke with sponsors, coordinated with her team, and suddenly, not only does this main focus just disappear from her life, but it's shrouded in disappointment. So let's go back to Diana on that TED Talk stage. She looks straight at the audience and says, Sometimes, if cancer has won, if there's a death and we have no choice, then grace and acceptance are necessary. But that ocean is still out there. I don't want to be the crazy woman who does this for years and years and tries and fails and tries and fails, but I can swim from Cuba to Florida, and I will swim from Cuba to Florida. Up to this point, Diana Nyad's story is one of failure, but... Failure is valuable. Failure is important. Whether we gain the lessons from the journey and walk away, or press on with a fire to reach our goal. And Diana Nyad is the embodiment of both. 
Tune in to the next episode in this series to hear about Diana Nyad's fifth and final attempt to swim from Cuba to Florida. And like Annette Kellerman, how she used revolutionary swimwear to help her reach for the impossible. And now it's time for a segment I call The Stacks. Doing research is one of my favorite things to do. The more you learn, the more the puzzle pieces of the world start to come together. So I want to take you into the stacks of the library with me to share favorites of the books, documentaries, movies, interviews that I think you would enjoy if you want to learn more about this topic. There are so many amazing resources out there about Diana Nyad. She's done a mountain of interviews and TED Talks, and there are a bunch of documentaries about her. But for this stage of her story, my favorite piece of research about her was her TED Talk called Diana Nyad, Extreme Swimming with the World's Most Dangerous Jellyfish. Diana is a natural public speaker, and in this TED Talk, she delivers the details about her decision to make this swim from Cuba to Florida and her perilous run-in with the jellyfish in a captivating way. So if you want to get a better sense of who Diana Nyad is and maybe feed off that extreme sense of dedication that she has to her dreams, I highly recommend watching her TED Talk, Extreme Swimming with the World's Most Dangerous Jellyfish. Thanks so much for listening. Please be sure to rate and review the podcast and connect with me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Woman in Time. And we'll see you next time on Broadly Underestimated. <laughs>